My name is Ryan Chase, and I'm another one of the elders here. And as Greg said, we're going to be in 1 Timothy 4 this morning. So invite you, if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, to turn with me to 1 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 16. And if it were up to you, and just to be clear, it's, it's not, but if you got to advise God, and of course, you don't, but just imagine that you had a say in how God went about making himself known to the world, how he went about publishing the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world, making Jesus known worldwide. How would you do that? How how would you go about it? Your mind might turn to the methods of ad agencies. You could use billboards. You could use blimps. You could use skywriting angels. Uh, Maybe you just might recommend that God peel back the curtains of heaven and show himself once and for all in a convincing way that no one could deny. By the way, if you're tempted to wonder why God doesn't do something like that, it's important to know that he did and he will. He did take on human flesh. He walked this earth. He showed himself convincingly in signs and wonders and authoritative teaching and in his resurrection from the dead. And still those whose hearts were hard did not believe. And he will do it again when he comes. So it's not a matter of if, but when but far more useful to us, far more edifying and beneficial than what you or I or the best and brightest ad agencies in the world could ever come up with is what the infinitely wise and sovereign God has willed to do to make himself known. So I invite you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 16. This is God's word. It's holy. It's authoritative. It lays claims on our lives. It calls us to believe and to respond to it in faith and the obedience of faith. And so out of high regard for God's word, I want to invite you to stand if you're able, even at home where you are, as we read God's word together. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. 
for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let's pray. Father, you are the living God, the Savior of the world. That's who you are. And we worship you. We honor you with reverence, with holy fear, with humble submission, with joyful trust, with glad obedience. We love you. And we love you because you first loved us and saved us when we were dead in our sin. And you are saving the world. And so we pray that you would speak to us through your word. These things that have been recorded for us, inspired by your spirit, faithfully recorded and preserved through the ages so that we might know you. Speak, O God, that we might know you and love you, that you are the one true living God. Amen. So there are something like 13 commands in these 11 verses. That, that's a big deal because one of the ways that we look for the main point in a passage is to look for the command. What's, what's the writer's command? What, what's the imperative that he's communicating? And there are 13 of them in this brief passage. There are commands from Paul to Timothy, defining his tasks and his responsibilities. Remember, Paul sent him, commissioned him to go to Ephesus to set things back in order because things had gone off the rails in Ephesus. There were false teachers creeping into the church, leading people astray, causing people to shipwreck their faith. And so Timothy was sent there by Paul to restore order in God's household, the economy of God, God's way of ordering all things in his household, the church. And so some of what Paul says to Timothy here is unique to Timothy. For example, in verse 14, this command has something to do specifically with a spiritual gift Timothy had and the occasion where he received that. That's unique to Timothy. Uh, more broadly, all of these commands apply to pastors and pastoral ministry. And if I was preaching this text to a gathering of pastors, I would preach it differently than I would preach it to you this morning. The question for us today is what God has to say to you, moms and dads, employees, employers, college students, sons, daughters. What, what does God have to say to you through his word full of instructions to pastors? Because even if you're not a pastor, God is addressing you through his word. He's always addressing all of his people through all of scripture, and it's all useful to us. So here's what I want to do. I want to show you how important it is to read Paul's instructions to Timothy in light of God's global redemptive purposes. God's global redemptive work. Both paragraphs here are packed with commands for Timothy and for pastors, and both paragraphs end on the note of God's saving work. Look at verse 10 as he wraps up that paragraph, that unit of thought, for to this end we toil and strive. Paul's talking about his own ministry because we have set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And then verse 16, when he wraps up that unit of thought, he says to Timothy, persist in this for, because by so doing, you will save. You will save both yourself and your hearers. So the thing that's on Paul's mind in all of this is salvation. 
Everything he says here has to do with salvation, the salvation of individuals like the hearers in Ephesus who are part of the church where Timothy is pastoring, as well as the salvation of the world, of all people, verse 10. Notice both statements begin with the word for, which means these are given as supporting reasons for the commands that filled this text. For all of the commands, the directives, the instructions, all of the encouragement here, these two statements are the foundation that the structure of the passage is built on. So this is it. This is the massive foundation, the immovable rock that everything else in 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 16 rests on. God, the living God, is the Savior of the world. God is the Savior of the world. That's who he is, and it's who he is because it's what he is doing. He is the Savior. He is saving people. You don't give somebody a title if they don't actually do that thing. You wouldn't call God the Savior of the world if he isn't actually saving the world. He's actually going to do it. And I'm concerned that some Christians have this view of history that God kind of started out things and in, in fits and starts along the way and none of his plans ever really worked out and the world is going to hell in a handbasket and it's all just getting worse and worse and one day God's just going to kind of give up and say all right well that's enough of that and end it all and then make things new but he's called the savior of the world because he's actually saving people who live in the world He's the savior of the world. That's what his economy is about. His household, his church, it's a pillar and buttress of the truth holding out the gospel to the world. So God's global redemptive purposes lay the foundation in Paul's mind for everything else that he's saying to Pastor Timothy here in this text. So what does Paul mean when he says that God is the savior of the world, especially of those who believe? Well, he's not teaching some kind of universalism, that the entire world is in fact saved from God's just wrath against sin, from death and judgment, regardless of what people do. They can keep living in their sin. They don't have to hear about Jesus. They don't have to know Jesus. Everybody's fine anyway. He's not teaching that. God is the Savior of of all people in the sense that he is not the Savior exclusively of one ethnic group. He's not the Savior of those who can prove their genetic lineage from the, the, the people of Israel. This is not the first time that Paul has brought up this theme in his letter to Timothy. Back in chapter 2, verse 3, he wrote that God, our Savior, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then he goes on to say, for there is one God, there's only one, not a different God for different peoples, one God for all peoples. There's one God and there's one mediator, not different ways to that God. There's only one way to God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So from these passages in Timothy, it seems most likely that one aspect of the false teaching that crept into the church in Ephesus was this idea that you had to be Jewish. Somehow you had to prove your lineage. Back in chapter 1, Paul warned against endless genealogies that were consuming the attention of people in the church there. And Paul is concerned to make it clear, this God, the one true living God, there is only one God, there's only one mediator, and he is the savior of all people from all tribes and all languages on earth. So In chapter 2 and here in chapter 4, Paul undermines the false teachers and he undermines that ethnocentric teaching 
by spotlighting the superiority of the gospel that he preaches, the true gospel. And he emphasizes two things, both the inclusiveness and the exclusiveness of salvation. Salvation is inclusive because God is saving the world. It's his will to fill the entire planet with worshipers. There will be people from every tribe on earth, every nation, every geographic location on earth who know and love and delight in his glory. He's saving Jews and Gentiles, blacks and whites, men and women, old and young, rich and poor. He's going to save Germans and Norwegians and the Dutch and Japanese and Somali and the Godoberry and the Bantu and Oromo people and the Thai and the Chinese. He's going to save people from every place on earth. He's the savior of the world. And at the same time, Paul drives home this truth that salvation is, in another sense, exclusive. It's exclusive in that Jesus Christ alone, Jesus and Jesus only, Jesus is the only way to be saved, to be right with God, to have your sins forgiven, to have righteousness counted to you, to be reconciled to the God against whom you have sinned greatly in all of your idolatry and your rebellion. That's what verse 10 means. God is the Savior of the world, especially, or you could say namely, or in particular, of those who believe. doesn't matter where you come from, he'll save you. If you believe in Jesus, or in chapter 2, verse 4, God desires all people to be saved, and here's the exclusive part, to come to the knowledge of the truth. You have to know the truth, the content of the gospel. So it's God's will to save the world, and to do so through Jesus, the question is, how does God go about making Jesus, the truth about Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, known to the world? If God is the Savior of the world, and the world has to hear about Jesus and believe in Jesus in order to be saved, how does God get the message of the gospel to the world? And 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 16 reveals it like this. This is my summary of what this passage teaches. God is saving the world through spirit-empowered disciples of Jesus who show and tell the gospel of Jesus. That's his plan. No multi-million dollar Super Bowl commercials no writing in the sky. God is saving the world. He's doing it through spirit-empowered disciples of Jesus who show and tell the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at the last verse, verse 16. Paul says to Timothy, persist in this. All these things I've been telling you to do as a pastor, persist in these things, for by so doing, you will save. You will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, that language is a little bit strange because isn't it God who saves? In what sense does Timothy save himself? We, we would say, we don't save ourselves. Jesus saves us. We don't save others. Jesus saves them. But Paul says, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Well, clearly God is the savior of all people. Verse 10, salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah 2.9, Jesus alone saves sinners. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12. But... Here's the key point. God uses people. He uses ordinary human beings as his instruments, as vessels, as mouthpieces, as conduits to deliver the truth of the gospel through which Jesus saves people. And Paul's not afraid to talk this way. 
Romans 11, for example, he says, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. I want to save them, Paul says. I want to save them. Or 1 Corinthians 9, 22, to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Or he says to husbands and wives who are experiencing marital conflict in 1 Corinthians 7, 16, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband who's an unbeliever? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? God might use you as the instrument through which he saves your spouse who doesn't know Jesus. Paul is passionate about saving people those who are lost in their sin against God. And he lived out his passion for Jesus by pointing people to Jesus. Paul shed literally blood and sweat and tears to deliver the gospel of Jesus to the nations. In verse 10, he describes his ministry as toiling and striving. Or another sense of that word is to suffer reproach. This was a painful, blood-earnest work that Paul was devoted to and in which Timothy was also involved And so he gives these instructions to Timothy that people might be saved. So in what sense can Paul or Timothy or you or I save anyone? Kind of like in the sense that a mother could save the life of her child from an anaphylactic reaction by using an EpiPen. It's the epinephrine that treats anaphylaxis. The the mom has no power to do that, but she can inject that life-saving treatment and save the life of her child and so God uses people you and me to deliver the gospel of Jesus to a lost and dying world that the world might be reconciled to him how exactly does that happen look at verse 16 keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching Paul says Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. How? By watching your life and by watching your doctrine. That's another word we could use to translate the word there, teaching. Watch your life, Timothy. Watch your doctrine, Timothy. You do that, you persist in that, you keep watching your life and your doctrine, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Not watch like, watch the paint dry, Not watch like watch the water boil. Watch like watch the road. Keep your eyes on the road. To stay the course, you must be attentive in order to make a thousand micro course adjustments. To stay between the lines. There are all of these minor adjustments you make subconsciously as you drive. So keep your eyes on the road. Timothy, keep your eyes on your doctrine. Keep your eyes on your life. Be watchful. Be attentive in these things because... Your attentiveness to your life and your doctrine will be the witness through which God saves the world. Show and tell. Watch your life. Watch your doctrine. Watch what your life exhibits. Watch what you communicate, what you believe. Gospel doctrine is important and gospel living is important. Those two things go together. Gospel doctrine without application is hypocrisy, but moralistic behavior without the gospel doctrine is just legalism and self-righteousness. True gospel doctrine produces genuine gospel living. So Timothy and Emmaus Road Church, watch your doctrine. 
That's what Paul says. This is a summary of all the commands he gives here. Those two commands sum up all the other commands. Watch your doctrine summarizes almost a half dozen commands in this text. He says in verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, Timothy, put these things, doctrine, gospel doctrine, put this before the brothers and you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus trained in Here's doctrine again, the words of the faith and the good doctrine. Or verse 7, the flip side of that is watch out for, avoid, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Or verse 11, command these things, teach these things. Verse 13, three activities he mentions, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching, or again that word could be translated to the doctrine. Four times in this passage Paul uses the demonstrative these things, which sounds rather generic. What things is he talking about? He's summing up the specific content and instructions he's giving in the rest of this letter. Content about food and diet, content about marriage and about widows and about slaves. All of these things, he's summing it up, the teachings, the doctrines of the Christian faith that Timothy must guard and teach. These things are the divinely authoritative doctrines of the Christian faith that make up sound doctrine. These are the teachings that produce godliness in God's people. These things are authoritative because they come from Jesus himself, according to chapter 6, verse 3. And these things produce godliness, according to chapter 6, verse 3, chapter 5, verse 7. These things are the words of the faith, the good doctrine, the true gospel faithfully passed down from the apostles to their disciples, all the way down to us today, preserved in God's word. And these things are distinct from the false teaching and they're vastly superior to the false teaching, the false ideas, the demonic doctrine as we saw last week, human philosophy. Look, it's not a matter of whether you're going to be shaped in your life by doctrine. Doctrine is an inescapable thing. You are going to be shaped by ideas, by beliefs, by values. It's not a matter of whether, it's a matter of which. Which doctrine is going to shape your life? What things are you going to believe? Whose voice are you going to listen to? What will be the standard and the authority in your life? Nobody has the option of living in authority-less life. There will be some ultimate authority, some ultimate allegiance to which you pay homage and that will rule your life. What will be the doctrine that shapes your life? Paul says to Timothy, put these things, these things into practice. Doctrine is the truth about God that the world needs to hear and to know and believe in order to be saved. And that's why the primary task of elders in the church, like Timothy, the household of God, where the the truth of the gospel is being held out to the world, the primary task of pastors is to preach and teach God's word. Because the world is saved and the church is shaped by the word. Verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture to exhortation, and to teaching. Paul lists three activities, and in the Greek there's actually a definite article there, the reading, the exhortation, the doctrine. These are activities that the church is devoted to because it's the word of God that shapes the people of God, and it's the word of God that a lost world needs to hear. And this, that command is um, that, that's why we're devoted to the preaching of God's world. In a time when I, I hear people question, um, 
pedagogically, you know, when it comes to methods of teaching and styles of learning, and we are so uh, entertainment-driven in our society, and people raise the question, is there really a place for expository preaching anymore? I mean, do people have the attention span anymore? Well, we, we preach like we preach out of allegiance to the authority of God's word, which tells us, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, which is the application of God's word to our lives so that stuff gets done in us, and to teaching, that's doctrinal instruction. These are the things that the household of God is to be devoted to, whether or not they're popular, because these are the means that God has willed to use to save the world. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. Without hearing the word of Christ, there is no faith in Christ. And so the word, the doctrine, is central to all that we do. So watch your doctrine, church. Watch what you believe, because the world needs to hear the truth about Jesus and all he reveals about who God is, what God is like, what God has done. So what do, you, what do you believe? What do you desire? Pay attention to those things. Learn to be cued into the, the thoughts and the desires of your own heart. Pay attention to what you're telling yourself throughout the day, how you're narrating what's going on in your life. These kinds of things always happen to me. Of course it would go this way for me. Nobody likes me. The, those are not... Uh, subtle, subconscious, harmless things. That, that's, that's your doctrine. That's what you believe, what you're convinced of. Who do you listen to? What messages and values are shaping your life? What do you pick up from the, the shows that you watch, the movies and the music that you listen to? Who do you follow on social media? There's no neutral ground. Everybody's communicating truth claims, values, doctrine. Watch your doctrine that you would hold unswervingly to the truth of God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ taught there. And watch your life. That's what Paul says in another handful of commands, like verse 7, train yourself for godliness. Or verse 12, set the believers an example in your speech and conduct, in love and faith and purity. Or verse 15, practice these things. Immerse yourself in these things. Verse 16, persist in these things. You hear the repeated emphasis on Timothy's way of life? This is what we've called in the series everyday godliness. It's gospel doctrine that you believe coming out your fingers in everyday life, coming out your lips. Watching your life is not a passive thing. Paul tells Timothy in verse 7, train yourself for godliness. The, the word translated train is gumnazo, where we get words like gymnasium, gymnastics. Paul takes this word for rigorous physical exercise and he applies it to this mindset and effort that Timothy is to show in his progress in godliness, in sanctification. So here's the motivation that Paul gives. Godliness is vastly superior to physical training. Verse 8, while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So just think for a second. To understand the argument, think about how valuable bodily training actually is. To be fit and strong is of immense value. It's good for your health and your longevity. It's good for your quality of life. It unlocks so much of the world to you. There are things you can do and places you can go 
if you're healthy and strong enough to do it. It benefits your brain and your mood and your overall energy levels. Physical training has a ton of value. And Paul sums all of that value up with kind of a, a token nod of acknowledgement. Yeah, it's slightly valuable, he says. That, that's the, the sense of the Greek word. Bodily training is slightly valuable. It's slightly valuable. So next time you hit the gym, think about this passage. All of that training, all of the benefit, all that you enjoy from that, it's slightly valuable, Paul says. And he's not trying to minimize the value of physical fitness. He is holding it up next to godliness, and it's a, a comparison thing. I mean, if you hold the earth up to a speck of dust, the earth looks big. But if you hold the, the earth up to the sun, the earth looks tiny. You hold the, all the value of physical training up next to godliness, and Paul says physical training looks minimally valuable because godliness is valuable in every way or literally for everything. So to put it the other way, there is not a single situation in life where you could not benefit from godliness. Godliness is of value to you in every imaginable situation you could ever find yourself in in life. Oh, and if that's not enough, not just in this life, but in the life to come. That's how valuable godliness is to you because it holds out promise. And the hope of the promise of eternal life shapes a way of life that is valuable in everything you put your hands to. It changes everything in this life and everything in the life to come. The life shaped by hope in the gospel of Jesus. But growing in godliness takes effort. So maybe you've prayed like I've heard some people say, You've prayed God would change you in some way, that he would set you free from some sin or temptation, that he'd just take it away, just let it be gone and never come back again. Or he would maybe just suddenly plop into your lap a whole new habit, a whole new demeanor, a whole new discipline. And maybe you've lamented, I, I prayed and nothing happened. Praying is good. It's a good place to start. God calls you to express your need, your dependence on him in prayer. And then God calls you to practice these things. So if you just prayed and then you got disappointed because nothing changed, you, you need to know God calls you in his word to practice these things. It's like practicing like you would practice a violin or practice playing basketball. You, you practice, and Paul says to Timothy, practice these things so that it's evident, it's observable to others that you're actually making progress. You're getting better. You're growing in godliness. Your, your progress should be apparent to other people. So practice these things or immerse yourself in them eat and breathe and just dwell in gospel doctrine so that it saturates your heart and your mind and produces a new way of living that's externally evident to other people. Persist in these things, Timothy, and church. But don't miss this. All that effort doesn't come from white knuckling. It comes from faith. Verse 10, Paul says of his own effort, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God. We toil and we strive, but we do it in hope. We do it because we're trusting God, the living God, who has promised his own life to us. And so we toil and strive. And not only is it motivated by faith, it's empowered by the Spirit. Paul says to Timothy in verse 14, don't neglect the gift you have. He's talking about spiritual gifts. The Spirit of God is in Timothy, and according to 
the teaching of the New Testament, the Spirit of God is in every believer and gifting every believer. So God's own Spirit is empowering you for life and for witness and for ministry and for worship and for prayer and for everything else that God has called you to. So watch your life because the world needs to see people who, who don't just profess all the right doctrine, but people who live lives that have been shaped by that rich gospel doctrine. Paul tells Timothy, set the believers an example. Practice godliness so that others may see your progress. God is the Savior of the world, and he uses Christians who show and tell the gospel to save the world. So, so what does your speech, what does your conduct say about what you believe about God? Do, do you gossip and slander? Do you lie Stretch the truth a little. Is your speech crude in any place? What about your, your demeanor? Are you anxious? Are you in despair often? Are you angry and irritable? Are you bitter towards someone in particular? Th- those are the things that come out. So, so you could ask your spouse. You could ask your roommate. Th- these are observable things. They come out in our countenance. They come out in our tone of voice. It's so unfortunate as much as we want to hide these things. They They work their way out and other people see them and those closest to us probably see them best. They indicate whether or not you're looking to Jesus for satisfaction and security. I I know that's true in my life. When I'm overwhelmed and anxious, that spills over to my family. It affects them. And I know it comes from the fact that in those moments, I'm not trusting Jesus to secure me. That's a miserable place to be. So watch your life. It's shaped by your doctrine. Watch your doctrine and look to Jesus. God will save this world. He will. He is the Savior of the world because he really will save this world. The nations will be discipled, and there will be. Don't don't make any mistake about this. There will be more than a few worshipers gathered around the throne for endless ages. The number of the redeemed will be greater than the stars in the heavens above. And God means to use you, your life, your words, to make Jesus known and to reconcile the lost to himself. So watch your life and watch your doctrine as you set your hope on the living God, the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your good and gracious purpose to save people and to save tons of people and to save a diverse group of people and to save people in such a way that it's clear that you get all of the glory for saving people. Thank you for using us. What a privilege, what a humbling joy it is to know you would use us to be, to be part of your mission. God, we pray that the gospel of Jesus would sound forth in this time of crisis in the world. May people call on you in droves. May people repent of their sins and turn to you and be reconciled to you through Jesus Christ, whom you graciously put forward as a sacrifice, a propitiation for our sins, that your wrath would be absorbed, that your favor would be guaranteed to us. 
thank you that you are merciful and gracious. Make yourself known. Do that through us. Do that through simple conversations with neighbors and do that through simple gospel living and gospel parenting. And God, get all the glory for Jesus' sake, that Jesus would be worshiped and adored to the ends of the earth forever, world without end. Amen.